Welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast, where we discuss caregiving topics to build knowledge and experience to be more confident and more effective care partners and caregivers. I am your host, Dr. Kevin Kloss. I am a movement disorder and Parkinson's disease specialist in private practice. I'm also a care partner for my mom battling Parkinson's disease. Welcome to season two. Thank you for your support of this podcast. Welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kloss. Today's episode will focus on psychosis of Parkinson's disease, and I will be talking about what caregivers need to know about the psychosis symptom. I will talk about treatment options, and I will mention research in process for new therapies to treat psychosis and Parkinson's disease. As care partners and caregivers of a loved one with Parkinson's disease, we need to be aware that this condition does not just cause motor symptoms like tremor, walking problems, stiffness, and slowness of movement, but may also cause a number of behavioral symptoms such as depression or anxiety. It can cause people to have apathy cognitive impairment that can lead to a dementia, and psychosis. Studies have clearly shown that if a Parkinson's patient experiences psychosis as part of the illness, this increases caregiver burden, it's more likely to lead to nursing home placement, and the presence of psychosis increases the risk of mortality from the disease. So you might be thinking, well, how often does psychosis occur in Parkinson's disease, and when does it occur? Well, two studies have looked at prevalence rates of psychosis in Parkinson's. A study was published in the Archives of Neurology in 1996, and a subsequent study was published in the journal Brain in the year 2000. Both were looking at prevalence rates and reported that 20 to 40% of Parkinson's patients will experience a psychosis as part of the illness. Most commonly, we see the visual hallucinations. The visual hallucinations may develop any time of the day, but it's more common that they present in the evening hours during periods where there's low levels of stimulation. People Experiencing hallucinations will experience seeing people or animals most commonly, but sometimes individuals will see bugs or other objects. It can happen as infrequently as once a week or as often as uh, continuously throughout the day. It's very unlikely that a Parkinson's patient will experience an auditory hallucination, but it does happen on occasion, and usually involves whispers or hearing music. One can also experience tactile hallucinations where we feel something on our skin, but there's truly nothing there causing the sensation, or they may experience olfactory or gustatory hallucinations. 
it's very unlikely that a patient with Parkinson's disease will experience psychosis until at least 10 years duration or longer after diagnosis. This was published in a journal called the Clinical Neuropharmacology Journal in the year 2006. Studies have shown that there are risk factors causing psychosis, and these include dementia, advanced age, the disease duration, depression, and sleep deprivation. So what do we typically see in the clinic when patients are eventually reporting psychosis to the healthcare provider? Well, in my practice and in my experience, it's very unusual that a patient brings this to my attention during a normal office visit. Typically, the care partner or caregiver will bring this to my attention, or it's not until I ask the question, are you experiencing any hallucinations, or do you have any delusional thoughts, that the information is finally brought forward. Patients will most commonly tell me that they are, on occasion, seeing something in the home or outside of the home, and when they report this uh, visual phenomena to their family member, it becomes obvious that not everybody is seeing the same thing that they are seeing. In some situations, the person that they are seeing feels like uh, just as real as their actual family member that's there in the house with them. But they will admit that when they closely observe this individual that they are seeing in their home, that not all of the typical features of that person are visible. So in other words, they can, upon inspection, tell that this is not what a a typical human being would look like. They're missing some features on their face or they don't have the exact appearance that I would expect But at the time, before they examine this closely, they truly believe that this was a person in the room with them and wondering, how did they get there? When they see animals or bugs, they look very real and seem to have enough detail to confuse the patient as to the reality of the situation. A patient the other day brought out this common phenomena where light can be uh, a benefit in telling if a hallucination is real or not. So, for example, this patient was telling me that he would commonly see a person in the home. This person was never talking to them. The person was just kind of walking around or sometimes just sitting in a chair um, waiting to be served, but not speaking to the patient directly. So he carried a flashlight with him, and he would shine the flashlight at the person sitting in the chair, and as soon as the light hit the image, the image sort of evaporated into thin air. And so this was his way of determining this is not a real person, this is a hallucination. And he also noticed the pattern that the hallucinations were more likely to be there in the evening and nighttime hours when visibility was decreased due to the darkness and not having enough light present in the home. 
And so again, the flashlight technique helped him greatly to be able to detect uh, whether the image was real or not. There are some patients that will tell us that they're having the visual hallucinations, but they're not necessarily disturbing them. An example of this was a patient who used to be a college-level professor and so was used to giving lectures to young people throughout his whole career. And during the advanced stages of his Parkinson's disease journey, he experienced the visual hallucinations, which were students, college-age students, were congregating in his backyard. And these students would line up or sit down in the yard, and they would simply wait outside his house for him to give his next lecture. And my, my patient believed that they were really there. He believed that they were waiting for his lecture. And even though he was retired, he didn't want to disappoint. So every day he prepared a short talk and he would go outside. And as he uh, looked around and observed these students sitting quietly just watching him, he would deliver a college lecture uh, to them. And when he was done, he simply went back inside and carried on with his day. This gave him something that he looked forward to doing on a daily basis. It kept him intellectually stimulated. And his wife felt that this was not a threat to him or to the family, that he never had uh, negative feelings or never seemed afraid. So she let him carry on with this routine and felt that it was actually good for him and uh, didn't want this to be treated. This is obviously an exception to the typical situation with hallucinations, but it's to highlight that not all visual hallucinations and Parkinson's disease need to necessarily be treated. If they're not causing any psychosocial stress or harm to the patient or to others, and they're not bothering the individual, then they don't necessarily need to be treated. Contrast this with a patient that was recently telling me that as he was sitting inside, he would look through the window and he would see military people dressed in their military outfits, carrying weapons, and marching toward his home. He became very fearful and started to panic. He uh, thankfully did not have a weapon inside his home to use, but he quickly got his wife's attention and wanted to call uh, for help. She was able to talk him down and to convince him that these were not real, but these images were being created in some respects, probably from a response from him viewing the news, and he was watching uh, the news coverage on the uh, Russian-Ukraine war, and these ideas, these images were getting into his head and manifesting a visual hallucination at other times. Now, as a caregiver, Sometimes the hallucinations of the patient may not bother the patient, but they may bother you as the caregiver. An example of this was a recent patient that was experiencing 
visual hallucinations. He was seeing six to seven people sitting in his living room, and he had great compassion for them. He felt that they were there because they needed help, that they needed shelter, and he wanted them to be comfortable. Uh, He even tried on occasions to serve food uh, to them and would bring them snacks and drinks and put them on the coffee table for them to enjoy. Well, his wife uh, was very disturbed by this and did not want them to continue on. She thought it was uh, bad that he was spending so much time worrying about them and concentrating so much on this issue instead of other things that he could be doing during the day. If she tried to sit down on any of the furniture in the living room, he would quickly yell at her to not sit there. Someone is sitting there. Don't sit on top of them or don't sit on their lap. And so she found that it was very difficult to find a place to sit in her own home. On occasion, she she got really angry and would say, it's time for these people to leave. And she would go to the front door and open the front door and scream that everybody here needs to leave and leave us alone. Well, this didn't change the hallucinations for her husband, and it ended up just causing more distress for him. He became very upset that she wanted to get rid of these people who needed help, and it ended up creating some challenges for their relationship. The visual hallucinations can also create some potentially very harmful problems for an individual, like an elderly woman a Parkinson's patient of mine that was seeing bugs crawling on her food. And she only saw the bugs when she was eating. She did not see them when she was sleeping uh, around the bed area. She didn't see them during the day with other tasks. They were only there when she sat down to have a meal. And despite her efforts to push away or to move the bugs off of her food, It became so unappetizing to her, knowing that these bugs were crawling all over her food, that she lost her appetite. And so she might only end up having one or two bites of food each meal and then would stop eating. Her family couldn't figure out why she had lost her appetite, why she wasn't eating, and why she was losing so much weight. The patient was afraid to admit this problem to her family, and she said she didn't want them to think she was crazy, so she didn't bring this up to their attention, and it only came out in an interview in the office when I really probed for these particular type of symptoms. Once we found out what was going on, we were able to treat the hallucinations and eliminate them. She went back to eating and was able to Uh, regain some weight. But she had lost so much weight, she was down to less than 100 pounds, and it was making her quite weak. And thankfully, we were able to reverse this process for her. There are obvious situations where it could become harmful or potentially dangerous when it escalates into um, a possible uh, fight or altercation. So an example of this was a patient of mine who um, did have a gun in his home, but he had it hidden in a closet in the bedroom. And 
Because he was mostly wheelchair dependent, his wife did not think that this would be a problem to continue having the firearm in the home. Well, on an occasion, the patient developed hallucinations where he believed people were trying to break in and he was seeing them outside of the home. And he developed the delusional thought that um, they were coming to get him. And he believed that his wife was involved in this break-in attempt. So when she came into the room, he became very angry and uh, wanted. was calling 911 and wanted uh, help and thought that she was in on the problem as well. He somehow managed to get to the bedroom closet on his own, and somehow he was able to uh, recover the firearm and barricaded himself in the bedroom. The police showed up and at that time tried to come into the room. However, he believed the police were part of the uh, group trying to break in and uh, cause him harm. So there was a standoff. The, the patient had a gun out and was trying to resist them coming in. And meanwhile, the police, who knew that this was a patient having an episode of psychosis, um, was trying to talk him down and trying to get him to put the gun down so they could um, create a safe situation for all. Thankfully, uh, they did talk him down. He was finally convinced uh, to put the gun down. And this was largely from the help of his adult son, uh, who was called to come over and to try to convince his dad that this was all part of the Parkinson's psychosis and not related um, truly to someone trying to break in and rob him. So once they were able to de-escalate the situation, they got the firearm away from him, and uh, this actually was the final episode that led to the patient um, needing to go into nursing home placement uh, due to uh, the gravity of the situation and ongoing problems with managing his Parkinson's disease. So I'm trying to give you a, a range of possibilities of what we commonly hear about in the uh, Parkinson's clinic. Again, these are more advanced patients that can have a variety of different experiences and in many cases may be very reluctant to share this information with their family. And not that uh, us caregivers need to go around every day or every hour asking our loved one, are you having any hallucinations? Are you thinking any crazy thoughts? That's certainly not um, productive or helpful, but we do need to be vigilant for observing the possibility that this might be going on. And on occasion, there's no harm in asking uh, in a nice way, you know, it's been said that hallucinations and confusion can be a part of Parkinson's disease. Are you experiencing any of these type of problems? And if you are, please be comfortable to tell me. I want to know what you're experiencing. And if we need to, we can always ask our doctor for help. Now, many people have wondered what is behind the psychosis? How does this happen in the brain and what's causing it? And 
we don't have all the answers at this time, but we do know that for some people, the problem is the medications that one is taking. So it's been well known for a long time that Parkinson's disease medications carry a possible side effect of causing psychosis. In our experience, this is especially true for certain Parkinson's disease medications, such as the dopamine agonist group of medications, drugs like Pramipaxol, Ropinerol, and Rotigotine, but also for medications such as Amantadine, the anticholinergic medications that are not commonly used anymore for Parkinson's disease, and even carbidopa levodopa or Cinemet can also be responsible if someone is taking high enough doses of this medication. But medications are not the only cause. We know that even before modern Parkinson's disease medications were available, that Individuals with Parkinson's disease prior to the modern treatment era did experience hallucinations as part of the illness. I have certainly seen patients that are not taking any medications for Parkinson's disease uh, that have reported um, hallucinations or psychosis during the course of their disease. This is typically patients that are now receiving deep brain stimulation uh, for the main therapy of their illness. They're no longer taking medications in some cases, and yet they still can exhibit a psychosis that would not be caused by the deep brain stimulator, but are coming from the disease itself. Now, research that was published in 2001 by Holleroid and colleagues in the Journal of Neurology and Psychiatry found that patients that have lower visual acuity had more cases of psychosis. Another study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Neuropharmacology in 1998 found that people who have impaired color contrast recognition had more likely psychosis or visual hallucination episodes. And finally, a study that was published in Brain in the year 2000 found that having eye-related pathology, such as cataracts, retinal disease, or glaucoma, can increase the risk of hallucinations. So it may be important if your loved one has not seen their eye specialist in some time and are now experiencing hallucinations, to get them to an eye clinic and have a good ophthalmology examination performed. There was a study that was published looking at functional MRI imaging of the brain when people were having hallucinations, and they found that there was an increase activation of an area in the brain called the visual association cortex while they were having these hallucinations. But at the same time, there was a decrease in activity in the actual primary visual cortex. So it appears that when people are experiencing visual hallucinations, the part of the brain that makes sense of vision 
becomes active and is now fooling the patient to believe that they are seeing something while the actual part of the brain, the visual cortex that registers the visual input is not firing like it would in other situations. So there's a mismatch of what is truly being seen and what is believed to be seen at that time. And finally, we know that structural lesions in the brain caused by the Lewy body pathology of Parkinson's disease are likely to be uh, part of this uh, problem. A study by Harding et al. in the journal Brain in 2002 found a strong correlation of Lewy bodies in the temporal lobe of the brain, especially an area called the amygdala, and its occurrence of visual hallucinations in those patients. In fact, even people that were experiencing psychosis immediately prior to death, autopsy studies showed an increased burden of Lewy bodies in the amygdala and the cortex of the brain, the thinking part of the brain. So there are pathological substrates to causing the psychosis at a stage, a later stage in the illness, when the disease has now spread into certain regions of the brain. Let's now shift to treatment of psychosis in Parkinson's disease and what we need to know as caregivers. Well, step one, and this is always the first step in my practice with patients, is that we need to rule out an underlying medical illness. So if an individual suddenly develops visual hallucinations or delusional thoughts or both, the first thing not only the healthcare providers need to be wondering about, but us care partners and caregivers need to be thinking about is could our loved one have an infection, a metabolic or endocrine disturbance, or something else that's affecting the brain? A common infection that causes the psychosis is a urinary tract infection. And so at this point, when a patient is now experiencing psychosis symptoms, we typically send off a urine sample to look for uh, infection. We do lab work to look for any signs of infection in the body. We examine the heart and lungs to make sure there's not a respiratory infection. We check labs for uh, metabolic disarray. We look at electrolytes, for example, uh, sodium may be off the normal range and causing this type of disturbance for the patient. We check thyroid studies. We check vitamin B12 levels. And we look for any possible causes of reduced blood flow to the brain. Maybe the patient is experiencing low blood pressure. Maybe there's a heart uh, problem that needs to be uh, identified. And so the first step when your loved one experiences this kind of problem is we need to get them to medical attention right away. If the hallucinations and delusional thoughts are uh, very sparse and mild, then certainly going to see 
the primary care physician or uh, the movement disorder doctor to get this evaluated would be reasonable. They may order urine, lab work, and sometimes imaging of the brain. However, if the psychosis is more severe and needs to be addressed more immediately, then it is wise to call for the emergency medical team to take your loved one to the emergency room for an urgent evaluation. The second step in treating the psychosis is to do a very careful review of medications. Now, sometimes as a caregiver, you can quickly put two and two together. Your loved one had no previous history of hallucinations or delusional thoughts. They went in to have a procedure done, and they were given a prescription for a new medication. Maybe it was a pain medication. Maybe it was an antibiotic. But nevertheless, they started this new medication. They came home, and now the psychosis has begun. We can obviously make that connection, talk to the healthcare providers, and change medications right away. So this may not be just the dopamine medications or Parkinson's disease medications. It may be narcotics or other pain medications. It might be uh, drugs that are used for anxiety. It might be a new sleep medication, or it could even be an antidepressant. There are many medications used for many different purposes that have the potential to cause psychosis as a side effect, and so we need to be aware of this connection. Now, if the problem develops and you bring this to the healthcare provider, the usual laboratory studies and imaging studies are unremarkable, and no new medications have been started. At this point, the healthcare providers will typically look at the Parkinson's disease medications and see if they can make an adjustment to help relieve the psychosis. So they might eliminate certain medications that they feel may not be so necessary anymore for the physical symptoms, uh, but could be causing the psychosis. So they might eliminate uh, some of the add-on medications such as selegiline or amantadine, they might eliminate the anticholinergic medications or even sometimes the dopamine agonist drug. Or they might consider just lowering the dose of some of these medications, even the carbidopa levodopa, to see if this eliminates the psychosis. We also typically look at the form of carbidopa levodopa that's being used and sometimes we'll switch people who are on the controlled release form of levodopa to the immediate release form because this can give us a more predictable response and we can measure the side effects from each dose more carefully. And then finally, once all of these choices have been optimized, if the psychosis continues, then we will need to talk about treating with an antipsychotic medication directly for the um, hallucinations and or delusional thoughts. Before I talk about the antipsychotic treatment options for this particular problem, I do want to mention uh, a case example. 
So a patient came in who had been on carbidopa, levodopa for over 12 years treating the Parkinson's disease symptoms. We had not made any changes to the dosing in several years. The patient was doing actually quite well physically, still independent in walking, being able to carry on most activities of daily living without any help, except for things like buttoning shirts and other fine motor tasks may require some help from uh, her husband. But overall, uh, she was quite stable with her motor symptoms. Well, she presented to clinic with visual hallucinations and some confusion. So we sent her off for the usual workup. We did the blood work, the urinalysis, and the CAT scan of the brain. Uh, nothing abnormal was found on the evaluation. So uh, we looked at a medication list, and her only Parkinson's disease medication was the carbidopa levodopa. And there was no other medications on the list that carried a side effect of psychosis, and she had not started any new medications recently as well. At this point, we decided that we wanted to try reducing the dose of carbidopa levodopa to see if this would help. Well, as we decreased the medication week by week, slowly, the hallucinations improved, but at the same time, the physical symptoms of Parkinson's disease became worse. She now had more difficulty getting up out of the chair. She was having difficulty walking around the home, and she was needing more and more care from her husband with this medication reduction. So they came back to the office. Uh, they actually had already gone back up to the normal dosing level that she was on before so that her physical symptoms would improve again. And they came to me to discuss other treatment options. So in this situation, all the typical first and second line strategies were tried but failed uh, to work. And here we had to move on to consider an antipsychotic medication. So this, this can be a common occurrence. This can be a common situation that you may run into, and it's important that you have some information on the antipsychotic treatments that are currently available and some knowledge of what is coming in the research pipeline. When we look at the antipsychotic therapies for psychosis, it's important for us caregivers to be aware that the FDA has issued a black box warning on the majority of the medications available to treat psychosis. And the black box warning tells us that there's an increased risk of mortality in elderly patients with dementia. The mechanism of this increased mortality is currently not clear, but nevertheless, a black box warning exists. So what about just the temporary use of an antipsychotic and then stopping the medication to see if the psychosis has permanently resolved? Well, a study in the Movement Disorder Journal back in 2005 by Fernandez and colleagues found that five out of six patients experienced a rebound in their psychosis 
when the antipsychotic medication was discontinued. So this does not seem to be a, a good strategy. Typically, in our experience, once a patient requires an antipsychotic therapy, we typically continue therapy uh, for the duration of the disease. Now, one of the treatments that receives a lot of uh, write-up in various texts is a drug called clozapine. And this particular medication has had reasonable success in treating psychosis, but the risk of a rare blood disorder called agranulocytosis is a risk with this particular therapy. So what this means for a patient is if they are prescribed clozapine, they will have to have weekly blood draws to check their white blood cell count for the first six months and then every other week after. So this plus some additional side effect concerns including uh, low blood pressure upon standing, which is called orthostatic hypotension, an increase in drooling complication as well as sedation, limit the use of this medication in general practice. The first-line antipsychotic that is used in most cases for patients is a drug called quetiapine, or brand name is Seroquel. This medication has action both in the serotonin receptors as well as in the dopamine receptors of the brain. It may be a little less effective than the clozapine medication, but you don't have the blood monitoring requirement or the risk of this blood disorder with this particular medication. And in our experience with the use of quetiapine, we rarely see a worsening of Parkinson's motor symptoms, making this one of the better first-line treatments. The dosing range is quite wide. We typically start with 25 milligrams or less and titrate uh, slowly the medication until the desired effect. Patients can go up as high as four to 500 milligrams a day on this medication, so this leaves lots of room for titration through the process. So caregivers need to be patient. Sometimes this process can take weeks or months before the medication reaches its best effect. Now, other antipsychotics, such as ziprazidone, um, have limited data in the Parkinson's disease psychosis experience. Um, these medications can have um, good efficacy at doses um, that are moderate in strength and can also have variable side effects as well. Another treatment option that your healthcare provider may discuss with your loved one in treatment of the psychosis is a drug called Nuplazid. The FDA approved Nuplazid in 2016. This is a drug that works on a non-dopamine-related neurochemical system in the brain. So with this drug, we do not expect to see any worsening of motor symptoms. After Nuplazid was on the market for many years, reports were made to the FDA regarding 
death of their loved ones shortly after use of this particular medication. The FDA investigated this series of reports and found inconclusive evidence that the drug was directly responsible for the deaths. However, the FDA did put a black box warning on this medication, which says that there's an increased risk of hospitalization and or death in individuals using this product. So this is something very important for you to be aware of as a care partner. A group at Johns Hopkins decided to review this in more detail and published an article in the Journal of Neurology. In their study, they looked at adults 65 years and older with Parkinson's disease that were treated with pimvanserin or Nuplazid, and they studied the charts of individuals from 2015 through 2018. This was a retrospective review of data from patients during this time period at their institution. They compared a group of patients receiving Nuplazid versus a group of patients that did not receive Nuplazid therapy. The group receiving Nuplazid were more likely to be hospitalized within a 30-day period compared to the group not receiving Nuplazid. However, if you look at a 90-day time period, there was no difference between the groups as far as rates of hospitalization. So the highest risk of a patient needing hospitalization seemed to be within the first 30 days after starting Nuplazid therapy. Then they looked at the difference in death rates between the group receiving Nuplazid versus the group not receiving Nuplazid, and they found that there was no difference in death rates within the first 30 days after use of Nuplazid versus not using Nuplazid. However, when they continued to follow the patients for 90 days, 180 days, and all the way out to one year, there was a significant difference between groups. The Nuplazid group had a higher rate of death compared to the group that was not receiving Nuplazid at the 90-day, 180-day, and one-year time points in this study. So I think both as healthcare providers and patients need to be very careful about the use of this product and be very aware of the risk involved in using this type of medication. If you look at other potential side effects of this medication, it includes changes in the uh, heart conduction system, something called QT interval prolongation. So it's very important that if your loved one is considering use of this treatment with the healthcare provider, that you talk about the potential side effects and risks to the heart, especially if the loved one has a pre-existing history of heart illness. And again, just be aware of the black box warning on this particular medication as well. Now, the success rate of this medication has been around 30% in helping hallucinations and delusional thoughts in my clinical experience. However, I've had very limited use of the medication due to my concerns about 
the risk involved with this product, it's important that you discuss the potential benefits and weigh the risks as you discuss this with your loved one's healthcare provider. Now you may be thinking, boy, this doesn't leave us with very many treatment options for this very difficult problem, and I feel the same way. Um, we certainly do have some success with some of the antipsychotic medications that I mentioned before. However, some patients just don't, do not tolerate these medications, or some families just do not want to take the risk involved uh, considering the black box warnings that are on these medications. So we need more help in the area of psychosis treatment for Parkinson's patients. And I want to tell you about some of the research that is currently underway for new therapies for psychosis. If you'd like to review these studies and medications that are in clinical trials, you can simply go to a website called clinicaltrials.gov and you can put in the search terms Parkinson's disease and psychosis and you will see numerous um, registered studies that are being conducted. You can dig into these and find out where they are being performed. It gives you contact information of the study personnel that you might consider contacting if you'd like to find out more about the study. And perhaps there's a center close to you conducting the research that you might be interested in participating with your loved one. And often in these type of studies, they will need the involvement of the caregiver to help their loved one participate in this type of study. So if we look at the clinicaltrials.gov website and search clinical trials for Parkinson's disease and psychosis, you can find over 200 studies listed. Many are repeats of the same medication, so these are not 200 unique different drugs, but there are a number of different compounds by different pharmaceutical companies that currently have clinical trials in phase one, phase two, and phase three, and we are looking forward to progress on these new therapies, and hopefully they will get to the clinic and, and be able to help our loved ones before long. So I hope this review was helpful. As a care partner and caregiver, if you are with a loved one with Parkinson's disease that is in the early years of Parkinson's disease diagnosis and starts to experience hallucinations, delusional thoughts, uh, it's important that you bring this to the medical provider attention and to consider whether this might be a side effect of medication that they are receiving to look for an underlying illness or infection that could be causing the problem. And if all of this is ruled out, then certainly a re-examination of the diagnosis might be worth considering because this would be very unusual for a patient with Parkinson's disease to have psychosis in the early years. If your loved one is in a more advanced stage of Parkinson's disease, then psychosis may become a reality and we have to weigh the benefits and risks of the different treatment options that we have to make the best choices to help them. Hopefully, medication adjustment with their current medications may be the fix, but if this doesn't work, then we certainly have to look at the antipsychotic options currently available 
Or if you have a research center close to you, you might consider participation in a clinical trial to have access to some of the newer treatments making its way through the pipeline. Again, I thank you for joining me on this podcast. This next month, we will focus on a new topic to learn about and to consider as we continue to support and love our loved ones with Parkinson's disease. Thank you again for your support. If you are learning from this podcast and enjoying the material on this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. If you think we are doing a good job and deserve it, you can leave up to a five-star review of this podcast on Apple. If you would like to suggest future topics for this podcast or guests that you would like to see interviewed on this podcast, please email pdcaringhelp at gmail.com. We do not receive any funding from pharmaceutical companies or industry so that we can provide you with unbiased content and content that you can trust. These shows are brought to you at no cost to you. We thank you for your support of this podcast. This podcast is not designed to diagnose or treat any particular individual or condition, but hopefully the information will help you as a loved one caring for a family member or friend with Parkinson's disease. Thank you for joining the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. And remember, you are a better Parkinson's disease caregiver than you think.